Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed and we're here this morning educating the investors and the this morning the, the parents uh, helping their children select and pay for college. Uh, we, I have some awesome guests this morning and I'm relieved this morning because I was telling our producer today him as I walked in this morning that I had a dream last night that this show was a complete disaster, that the producer of the show wasn't here, every, nothing was working with the audio. I actually had a dream that my guests, that you guys brought extra people into studio and we didn't have enough <laughs> microphones. It was like, I really got to relax and, and enjoy my Friday night and not worry about this stuff, right? But but here we are and everybody is uh, on the Zoom with me and we're actually uh, on Facebook Live this morning as well. And look at me, I put on a nice top instead of my normal t-shirt or or workout gear because uh, we're live on Zoom. So uh, I uh, the, we're, we're, this this uh, show is geared toward uh, students uh, uh, likely attending college and parents of those students. This is a college, um, this is a college planning type show. My title of it was Be Prepared for the Cost of College. We're gonna talk about sort of all things uh, college and financial aid today. So uh, we're live this morning in Marshfield, 781-837-4900, if anyone wants to call in and join us on the air with questions. Uh, so my guest this morning, let's get to that. Let's do some introductions because I have some first time guests, but I'm really excited about this. Um, so we have three members of the Vested Academics team. 
And I'm going to give you guys, I don't know who wants to start, Tyler, maybe you being the CEO want to start and just kind of give, uh, do a little introduction of yourself and your business. And then we'll move to Jen Gallagher and Joe, uh oh, Novinson. Did I pronounce that okay? <laughs> Nailed it. Okay, awesome. <laughs> uh, so Tyler Vunk with Vested Academics, do you want to uh, start and do a quick intro? Yeah, sure, Alyssa. Hey, thanks a lot for having us. We appreciate you coming over here so early and making things happen on Saturday. But um, this Tyler is Bunk. this is every Saturday for me. Oh. <laughs> Almost every Saturday. <laughs> uh, and this is this is no big deal for me. But yes, thanks for thank you guys for being here as well. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Um, so I'm Tyler Bunk. I'm the CEO and founder of Vested Academics college planning and student coaching. And you can think of our business as having two separate arms. One is uh, devoted to learning support. So it helps students grades um, three to five, six to eight, high school and college um, improve their learning skills, become more independent learners so that when they do go to school, they can take or make the most of it. And then uh, the other side of our business is college planning. So um, as Jen and Joe will start to tell you in a moment, um, you know, they help students with college searches, uh, with the application side of things, and making sure that they don't overpay for um, a college degree. And actually, hopefully, if everything goes right, um, don't take on excessive student debt. Uh, and one of the things that I'd love to say about our business in general is that, you know, it is a family process. So we make college planning a family process from start to finish. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say that because... Um, I think every 17, 18, 19 year old like thinks they're very mature, <laughs> but then you get to be like 40, right? And you're like, wow, I really, you know, I, I what was I thinking back then, right? So it, I think it's nice that, you know, even though maybe students don't want to admit it or, and have different levels of maturity, of course, but it's nice to have, to make it a family decision because oftentimes the parents are, you know, helping pay for it or paying for it and, and, it, and it really should be, um, it's a nice thing to do with your family as well. So by the way, before we get to Jen and, and Joe, how busy are you guys right now with the academic coaching yeah, as a result so, of COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that I think a lot of people didn't know is that um, for us, you know, our model, about 95% of our business is conducted via video conference. So we have clients from Maine to Hawaii. But uh, essentially, um, when the lockdown happened, um, we, you know, were doing our thing. So it was kind of business as usual for us. Um, we are expanding, though, um, you know, to help students, not only during this difficult time, but I think a lot of people stumbled upon us during that time because yeah. they were looking for qualified professional um, educational uh, tutors and coaches that could help their students out. So, you know, we're excited to let more people know about what we do and how we can help their families and, and students, uh, not only during this challenging time, but also for years to come. Yeah, awesome. All right, who wants to go next, Jen? Yeah, sure, I'll go next. Um, so I am the college consultant on staff and I have been in college admissions for over 20 years. I have settled with my family on the South Shore, so I'm familiar with the area. Um, and I started working in college admissions actually when I was an undergrad and um, it was just a very intriguing, intriguing process to me. I obviously had gone through it as a student myself and through my family. 
Um, but to see it on the other end was just, you know, kind of awesome. And um, I just loved going through the process with families kind of from start to finish. Um, it can definitely be a stressful time, although I feel like if you start early enough and, you, and you're educated that it can actually be kind of a fun thing to do. Um, and I do see that with a lot of my kids um, and especially their parents when they when they do kind of understand the process more, you know, it can actually be uh, a fun thing rather than than an overly stressful thing. Now, Jen, who are your what's your typical client look like? Is it more or student? Is it more that student that's like just completely lost and has no clue what they're interested in, where they would go, what 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 they would prefer for an education setting as they go to college, doesn't know what their major will be? Is it is it sort of that type of student or is it the student that's more mo- like motivated, like I know what I want to do and this is kind of what I want and help me find it? Or is it is it yeah, all of it's those? a good question. It's really it's really just it, it's all over the place, really. Okay. I mean, I would say, you know, there are a lot of kids that don't know what they're doing. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing when I was 17 years old. And especially when they become a senior, that's kind of the last thing they want to think about. And even if they're they are a little motivated, sometimes they can't really ask those questions or know, you know, how to kind of start the process. So yeah. I think when you work with someone that kind of has that um, knowledge. You can, you know, I use a lot of prompts to have them and their families think about things that they probably have never thought about. Um, and again, it's a very individual process. So their parents might've had a very different, you know, go around at it. So, um, you know, it, you know, because everybody's different and there's so many colleges out there that offer so many things, you know, it's very individual to the student. So yeah. I can really help really any, anyone, any, any student and kind of point them, you know, in a, in a direction that maybe they didn't even think they, they were going towards. So. Yeah, that's great. And as I said, but, but excuse me, before the show started, we can have a whole nother show on, you know, more focused on what you do and, and helping students um, with that selection process and parents. And that would be really, really interesting. We, we actually started when, when Joe was having some technical problems and we were like, Oh, I'm not sure he's going to make it today. So uh, <laughs> we were starting to put together an outline, but we could use that for, and have you guys on again in the future and talking, really talking more about that um, college selection um, process. That That would be really great. great. I I think it's really, um, it behooves all people to kind of learn when they're, when a student is entering college rather than they're, you know, getting towards the end of it. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot of information put on the family all at once, but the more knowledge, you know, again, it saves them money and, you know, it's just makes it for a less stressful, a less stressful time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Joe, how about you? You're next. All right. <laughs> Good morning. Thanks for being here. Be- considering we sort of uh, did the show outline surrounding your expertise in the financial aid area, so I'm glad you're here. You know, I'm glad I can be here. And uh, you know, I have to say, I have been in the industry for about uh, eight years, and I've done financial aid at a variety of different institutions. I've been a financial aid administrator at a small private liberal arts college in Central Massachusetts. Um, I was employed at a large. Uh, public research university in the South Shore, and I'm currently working out of medical school in Boston. So altogether, I have about eight years of experience, but if there's one commonality that sums up my experience is that all the students I've been working with from all these different walks of life are all driven by the same goal, and that's to earn their college degree. And mm-hmm. honestly, that's where I come in, and that's where Vested Academics comes in, because there are a lot of other college planning agencies out there that are committed to helping a student get to school, but there are so few 
that actually care about getting a student mm. to and through school. And that's what I appreciate about working with Vested Academics is that we're not just focused on getting you through your freshman year. We want you to see through the other side, all four years, your sophomore, your junior, your senior year. So when you're walking across that stage on graduation day, diploma in hand, that you can feel confident knowing that you picked a school that was not only the right financial fit, but you're going to be graduating with the least amount of debt possible. That's awesome. Yeah, do you guys keep in touch with your students all through their college career? Yeah, I, sorry, Joe. Kind of, kind of took over for you there. Ab, ab, absolutely, yeah. Um, and the idea is that we want to be an ongoing resource for families. So whether you find us um, early on, maybe in eighth grade for early college planning, or if you don't find us, maybe even until your junior year of college, we can still help you. Um, cool. And Joe, I'm sure Joe, you can you can talk about you know repayment strategies and things like that later on as well. Yeah, and, and that's what we're here for. And that's something that you're not going to get from a lot of other college planning services. You're not going to have them sit down and essentially map out what is your repayment strategy uh, once you enter the real world. And generally speaking, when we're talking about taking a student debt, I usually advise students to not borrow more than 90% of their annual starting salary, depending upon what profession they're looking at. Uh, in some cases, that's unavoidable. Um, especially at medical school mm. where oftentimes you're taking on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Um, if it's more than 90%, you want to put yourself on an income-based repayment plan, but I dare you to find another college planning service who's going to uh, break down those seven different types <laughs> of repayment plans and calculate out which one is the right fit for you based on your current financial situation. Joe, we're going to get along really well. I love doing calculations and projections, so this will be great. <laughs> um, all right, let's start. Where I wanted to start today was um, in the financial aid arena regarding the expected family contribution. So yes. one of the things that I do with my clients, well, my definition of, of college planning is is, is uh, from a financial perspective in terms of, you know, what are your goals? Generally, we'll have a conversation, you know, do you envision them at public school, private school? Um, what do you envision taking on in terms of like a percentage of the, I'll call it the burden, which is the cost of college. You know, some parents want to feel very strongly that they want to pay for the entire education for their kids. Some people feel very strongly that they want their kids to have some skin in the game, right? They want mm -hmm. them to have that those loans. Maybe they think they'll, maybe they'll They'll take the students will take it more seriously. You know, we could talk about that, but but um, you know, that's kind of where I start my conversation. What you know, let, and that allows me to kind of hone in on. Okay, well, here's what we think is roughly your cost in today's dollars. Let's make some inflationary increase assumptions. Let's make some investment return assumptions, and let's back into how much should you be funding these education accounts with in order to hit those goals, right? So, but I I and and I can do that till the cows come home if I. I have good numbers, but what's really, really hard to do is have a good number for what, you know, I might be talking to a client who has a five-year-old and w how much are we going, are, are you thinking we're going to pay in today's dollars for their education annually? It's so hard, you know, you can, mm -hmm. it's so hard because this whole financial aid, expected family contribution thing, it, it's just, it, that's individualized. And not only is it individualized, but it's based on a future financial situation, income and assets. And so, and, and, and so I just wanted to spend some time on that to allow people 
to give people an opportunity to like wrap their heads around, well, what does this really cost? Am I really going to be paying, you know, 72,000 per year? Because that's what the website says right now. Yeah. Um, And that's a really great point that you brought up. And that's a term that a lot of parents and students too get hung up on expected family contribution. And I want to uncouple that word expected because when we're talking about expected, that's not the school's determination. That is a calculation made by the federal government and expected is really just a sliding scale. Realistically, a student may be able to pay up to $72,000, but more often than not, they can't contribute that much. Maybe they can contribute as much as a dollar to their education, but based on the family's available financial resources, the Department of Education has decided two things. First, they've decided if a family has a $72,000 expected dollar contribution, they don't have financial need. If your expected family contribution is in $5,200 or less, you're not going to qualify for any free money, essentially. You're not going to get the federal Pell Grant. If you're a Massachusetts resident, you're looking at a public college or university in Massachusetts, you're not going to get the Mass Grant. Um, you'll probably just qualify for a direct and subsidized loan. So it's going to tell the college, okay, this person doesn't qualify for any need-based federal aid, any free money. Um, but it also gives the school a heads up in terms of, oh, okay, here's what the student may be eligible for institutionally if they're not going to qualify for any free money. Because in a lot of cases, if you just qualify for a $5,500 direct and subsidized loan for your first year, if somebody is going to sweeten the pot at another school and they're going to give you a larger merit scholarship, then that might be a signal to the admissions team that, okay, maybe we need to up the ante here. So what was that threshold again? Did you just throw out a number that if you if your EFC is this, you're not going to get any aid? Ah, well... And and that's where I want to be very particular because when we're talking about aid, and I totally understand where people are coming from with aid, is that when we're picturing aid, we're picturing the free money, the money that we don't have to repay, the federal Pell Grant, Massachusetts State Grant. Um, There are other types of aid, but when we're talking about aid more broadly, um, I just try thinking about it as money that you yourself are paying out of pocket to afford the cost of college. And that does include loans. The federal government will lump loans in as part of your financial aid. So whether that's a direct unsubsidized loan or a subsidized loan, those are considered sources of aid. So generally speaking, if your expected family contribution is higher than $5,200, you don't get that free money. You don't get that Pell Grant. If you're a mass resident, you don't get that Massachusetts State Grant. Um, You can still qualify for a direct subsidized loan, it's subsidized, as the name implies, because the government's picking up the uh, interest while you're taking classes. But if you, let's say, have a fairly high expected family contribution, let's say both parents are working six-figure jobs, it's extremely unlikely that you're going to qualify for more than $5,500 in a direct uh, unsubsidized loan, okay. which the government doesn't uh, pick up the tab on. The interest starts to accumulate the minute you're enrolled. Okay. Help me understand the, so I understand that the FAFSA is the federal application uh, for financial aid, right? So there's, there's the, the parents would fill out the FAFSA to determine if there's any federal aid available, right? But then every school also has their own Is that true that every school has their own application for financial aid or does some of them use the FAFSA? Like what's the difference between the federal government and the and the school's formula? Well, I have to say the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, is universally accepted at all uh, colleges and universities that participate in the federal uh, Title IV Federal Student Aid Program. Um, But some colleges 
have an additional application on top of that. That is the CSS or the College Scholarship College Scholarship Search Profile that's administered by the College Board. Uh, okay. but that's only about 400 colleges that actually utilize the CSS profile, and these are mostly uh, larger, uh, well-to-do institutions okay. um, that have outsized endowments that they can dip into to create a merit funding from. Um, but that's only 400 schools nationwide that utilize that feature. And then internally, this is where. Uh, game theory starts to come into play. It's the admissions team that's uh, wheeling and dealing and making deals with students and their families as to how much merit aid a student could potentially receive. And a lot of people usually end up making the mistake right out of the gate that if they feel that they haven't received enough financial aid for their child, that they want to go hit up financial aid first and ask them, you know, what can you do for me to help my child make your college a reality? And I got to tell you, that's really the wrong tree that you're barking up. You really hmm. don't want to be focused on financial aid because financial aid only deals with need-based aid. Unless you present financial need, they're not going to be able to assist you. What you really need to do is you need to start out with your admissions team and you need to go up to them and you need to say, hey, listen, my child would love to come to your school. They can close their eyes. They can see yourself, themselves on your campus, but we have a problem and it's a money problem. And school B here is willing to give my child a $15,000 marriage scholarship and it's going to cost us less to send them there. What can you do for us so your school can be our child's reality? And, and does, that, you know, does that, you're saying that don't, don't waste your time doing that? Or you're saying that that's something that people should consider doing? I'm going to say if you feel like you haven't qualified for enough financial aid right out of the gate um, and you're looking to essentially play these different colleges and universities that you're applying to off each other, you don't want to start hitting up financial aid for more money. You want to start with the admissions team. You want to become familiar with who your admissions uh, representative is. Okay. And you want to essentially pitch your case and explain to them that, listen, you know, I'd love to come here. I can close my eyes and see myself on your campus. But yeah, okay. I have another school that's willing to... Uh, pay more for me to attend and uh, it ultimately cost me less money in the long run to go there. So what can you do for me so I can come here? Okay. Do you have any statistics regarding like what percent of American families qualify for need-based aid? Is it a high percentage? I would say it's uh, a relative percentage. It's hard for me to put a number on okay. that because there are so many families that don't even apply through the okay. FAFSA. And then you hear about these tens of millions of dollars that are left on the table and Pell Grants that were never distributed. Um, I can say right now, if we're just talking about federal student loans, uh, as of February 2020, there are $1.6 trillion in federal student uh, loans floating out there. Um, that actually exceeded credit card debt for the first time in 2010. Mm. Um, auto loans in 2011. Uh, it wasn't until 2012 that it exceeded $1 trillion. And the crazy thing today is in the year 2020, of that $1.6 trillion, $1 trillion of federal student loan debt is owed by women. So it's yeah. very important when we're talking with families about their future that we be thinking not only about the next four years of a student's life, but we want to be looking at this essentially through a prism about equity, about not just uh, 
equity in terms of financial resources, but also making things whole for people from all different backgrounds. And as I quoted, women especially, so that when they're out there in the workforce and they are competing for the same jobs that men are doing, that they are not going to be burdened by a unrealistic level of loan debt that they're not able to repay. So you just basically said that the majority of outstanding student loan debt is held by women, right? That's correct. And are we thinking that that's due to the wage gap? You know, I would say that that's a considerable portion. Yeah, I don't know of what that, that is. That the wage gap does play into terms of how m- many resources a woman may have to repay her student loans. Okay, but I think you know, there's also <laughs> the consideration that women compared to men. Uh, are more likely to attend college and pursue an advanced degree, whether it be an undergraduate or an advanced degree, a master's degree, a doctorate. And I can say that at my own uh, medical school. (laughs) I mean, women outnumber men, uh, I got to say like 70, 30. Well, many men go into the trades and things like that and might not carry debt as a result of trade school and things like that too. Yeah, yeah. and and it really does depend, too, on, like, what type of trade school that they're looking at. If they're getting a vocational degree through a community college, I mean, that's certainly a cost savings. But if we're talking about a for-profit institution, um, may not be as much of a cost savings there. Okay. But, uh, you know, I will say, uh, just, you know, generally speaking, uh, the further you... uh, advance in your academic career once you're past your undergraduate degree, when you're looking at your master's degree, potentially a doctorate degree, there are just fewer and fewer resources available for a student to fund their education. I mean, at the doctoral level, which I'm working at right now, you essentially only qualify for loans. Okay. There may be outside private scholarships you could qualify for, but yeah, it's really only loan eligibility that you have. And a lot of that happened during the uh, sequester in uh, 2010, 2011. Hold that thought, Joe. I know you're on a roll, but we got to take a quick break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm joined today by Vested Academics. We're talking all things college planning and financial aid. We're just taking a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and we're talking all things college this morning on this cloudy morning. Uh, I'm joined this morning by a few of the folks at Vested Academics, uh, located right here in Massachusetts. Uh, How about website, guys? Is it vestedacademics.com? Yep, you got it. Vestedacademics.com. This is their first time guest, but everything sounds great. I'm excited to have you guys. Thanks again. So we have Tyler Vunk, who's the CEO. We have uh, Jen Gallagher, who's a college planning consultant. And we have Joe Novenson, who's a financial aid consultant. Um, 781-837-4900 is the call-in number for anyone that wants to call in uh, into the studio and ask a question or join us on the air. Um, I We are talking about financial aid uh, prior to the break, and I do want to continue on that. I have a few more questions regarding EFC and, and you mentioned merit-based aid, Joe, before, yes. um, before the break. So I, so I guess a couple things. So regarding the EFC, my understanding of, of that, uh, the way that that EFC expected family contribution is calculated is that it's, it's heavily based on um, assets in the student's name. It's also mm-hmm. heavily uh, based on a- uh, income in the student's name if they happen to have a part-time job and are making any sort of decent money there. Um, and then it's based on the parent's income and mm-hmm. then a little bit on the parents, on assets in the parent, the parent's name, like non-retirement assets. So can we, can we talk about that a little bit more in terms of how that's calculated, what counts 
against uh, people when it term, when it comes to calculating that expected family contribution. And by the way, when I, I don't want to say that in a negative way, it, for someone that doesn't, for someone that has a high expected family contribution, that means that they're doing. There's a lot of things going right for them in the world of finance, right? Income and or assets are significant, right? So it's not necessarily a yeah. bad thing, but it does negatively affect uh, potential aid available when it comes uh, to college. So can we elaborate on that a little bit? And, and by the way, and was I uh, understanding that correctly in terms of how it's calculated? Of course. So the two key drivers of the expected family contribution formula at the federal level are adjusted gross income and household size. But you were right when you were talking about how student assets are assessed at a higher rate than parental assets. Um, Let's say, for example, if you have a trust in the uh, student's name and you have to report that trust on the FAFSA, well, that is going to be assessed at 20% of its value according to the expected family contribution formula. But if this were a trust in the parent's name, it would only be assessed at 5% of its value. So it's very important that if you have any assets in the student's name prior to filing the application, that you may want to consider transferring them over to the parent so that it doesn't hit the student as hard when they're going to apply. Um, But what I touched on before, the adjusted gross income, which it's pretty self-explanatory, of course. I mean, it's the uh, amount of money that uh, will be reported on your uh, tax return that you're going to be taxed on. Um, But we also want to consider the household size. And when we're talking about household size, this is where a lot of people get tripped up, um, especially if we're talking about blended families, maybe families that are affected by separation or divorce or remarried. Uh, Maybe you're supporting an elderly parent or you have other extended family living with you. And I noticed this a lot when I was looking at my uh, large public research university is like when we would ask people what their household size was, um, they would pretty much throw in everybody under the sun, even people who they weren't (laughs) listed as uh, dependents on their tax return. So it's really important when we're talking about household size for tax purposes, who could you legally claim as a uh, member of your household? And I know that they've recently changed uh, the rules around uh, claiming exemptions on your tax return. But if we're just talking about who do you primarily support Mm. at least 50% of the time, who you are the primary caregiver for, that's going to come back and uh, be revisited by the financial aid office, especially if your file gets selected for a process known as verification. And, you know, I've had it before where I've had to ask people for their tax returns. And if I don't see a family member that they're claiming in their household, that I will be forced to cut them from the household size and cutting somebody from their household size has a dramatic impact on the amount of aid you receive. Um, If somebody were to go from having five or six household members to three or four, I mean, that could be the difference between getting a federal Pell Grant or not. Hmm. So it's really important that if you have any questions about who should count towards your household size, that you ask your financial aid office before you apply. I'm laughing because your cat is very busy in the background, Jeff. He is very busy in that little tunnel that he's going through. He's very cute. Oh um, uh, yeah, no, that's uh, my kitten, Marla. She's uh, she's a little ham. We love her to bits. She actually is a uh, a COVID refugee too. She showed up on our uh, doorstep a couple of months ago, uh, planted herself between our uh, 
lawn gnomes just started screaming her head off and how can I say no to that? <laughs> oh, so, that's so sweet. Yeah, so we've uh, really enjoyed uh, breaking her in. I'm not sure how enthusiastic her brothers are, but uh. they seem to accept her presence. And uh, no, I do, I do catch uh, some rare moments of affection between the three of them. So we're just really grateful to have them as part of our big family. Well, that's good. And uh, I cannot claim them toward my household size. No, you can't, no. <laughs> um, so you mentioned household size. So I, I actually, I thought, I know that like when you have multiple students in college at the same time, that lowers your EFC pretty significantly, right? I guess I was, I didn't think that the, the, the number of kids you had in general was not, I didn't know that it was as big a factor. But certainly when you have, like if you had twins or you have you know kids overlapping in those school years, that's mm-hmm. a huge swing in the expected family contribution in a good way, right? Oh, it's a big deal. Yeah. It is a very big deal. And it was one that was beneficial to uh, my family. I'm the oldest of three. I'm older by uh, three years than my little brother and five years by my little sister. So there wasn't much overlapping between me and my siblings, but between my little brother and my little sister, it was a huge cost savings to my family to be able to put them on the FAFSA as both being in college at the same time. And that does bring down the EFC quite considerably because the federal government, when they're making their calculation, also has to consider the fact that those parents are paying for another child's education. Yeah. So is there, are you, are you, I don't know if this is hard for, if you can do this, but you mentioned a little bit ago that generally speaking, like a married couple, each making six figures in their job probably wouldn't be qualifying for much, if any, financial aid. Is that, mm-hmm. is that the case? Okay. How about, um, can you make that same generalization using assets instead of income? What if there's a family that has more modest income, but came into an inheritance or a life insurance policy or something and has more significant assets. Is there, is there like a threshold for if you're showing X, you know, hundreds of thousands in non-retirement assets, you're not going to be qualifying for aid? I mean, I would say if you're showing hundreds of thousands in non-retirement assets, you're probably doing all right and you can probably afford to help your child pay for school. So yeah, I wouldn't say that you're going to qualify for that free money, that federal Pell Grant, that Massachusetts state grant. Okay. Um, but as I mentioned at the uh, top of the break, uh, if it's assets that are held in the student's name, those are assessed at a higher value. They're assessed at 20% of its value compared to 5% of it's the parent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's important just to have uh, all of your ducks in a row when we're talking about assets. But uh Yeah, just, you know, generally speaking, um, a lot of this is determined by adjusted gross income and household size. And uh, I mentioned before, between the FAFSA and the CSS profile, that's available at about 400 schools. Um, Fun fact with the CSS profile, if your family has an adjusted gross income of less than $45,000, you can actually appeal to the uh, college board for a waiver because unlike the FAFSA, the CSS profile costs money. It costs uh, $25 to file the initial application and $16 for every subsequent application you're sending to other schools. So that just gives you a relative range in terms of uh, resources uh, a family has, uh, what types of opportunities are and aren't available to them. Okay. Can we come back to assets for a moment? So I can think of one client that I have who um, is is a young widow with four kids. Yes. And her husband was the income earner and she is now has to be an income earner, but her earnings capability is not very significant. She um, she does have fairly significant assets, but 
they were a result of his life insurance policy, so they're not in retirement accounts. So she essentially has to, um, we're earmarking a large part of this life insurance policy for her future and her retirement. So, and if and if she used all that to pay for her four kids to go to, th- to go to school, what does her life look like, right? Given her her earnings capabilities are, are less significant and she doesn't have, uh, technically speaking, retirement assets in her name, right? So that's where, that's just an example, that's a fairly unique situation, thank goodness, but that's just a, um, this is a this is a planning opportunity for this client because we are trying to you know we're going to be having conversation conversations about where she can put those dollars that are earmarked for her own retirement you know a, mm-hmm. an annuity for example to to um, take it off the table for the FAFSA anyway um, but I, I'm just I'm concerned about well. I, I, and I feel like this is under the heading of like, sometimes people hyper-focus on positioning themselves perfectly f- to maximize financial aid, but it's sort of at the detriment of their own financial picture. Like, you know, for example, cash in the bank. Like I want my clients to have a very sufficient emergency reserves account. COVID-19 is a perfect example, a, yeah. a, a reminder of why you need to have an emergency savings account, right? So, but, but when it comes down to planning for financial aid, right? You don't want to have cash in the bank. So I, you know, and you don't want people taking cash out of the bank and either spending it or putting it in retirement accounts uh, where there could be penalties to take it out and stuff like that. So I I just wanted to kind of talk through like, you know, what, what if my client has most of their money in retirement assets and four kids, but they want to have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Are they going to be just written off because they have some cash, which everybody should have cash. You know what I mean? Um, so that's why I was trying to hone in on, and maybe there's not a magic number, but I was trying to hone in on, you know, what, what, at what mm-hmm. level let's, let's take, for example, cash in the bank at what level is that positioning someone where they're ineligible? Is there really a number? What is it? 50,000 or a hundred thousand or maybe I, that's why I was saying. Maybe you can't give me that number. It's, I know it's not that black and white. Yeah, no, I wish I had a hard and fast number for you, but I'd have to say, you know, what it really boils down to at the end of the day are those two factors that I mentioned at the top, um, our household size and adjusted gross income. And when we're talking about income, we're talking about earning potential. And that's what we're looking at too, when somebody files a uh, special circumstance appeal, especially uh, right now, considering the moment we're in and how a lot of people have been affected by... uh, the employment crisis around COVID-19, people have lost employment, people have had their hours slashed. And so I'm not expecting that so much at my level, but I imagine at the undergraduate level, there are going to be a lot, a lot of what are known as professional judgments being made around people's special circumstances. And what we're taking into consideration is that family's earning potential. And what I would do when I'm looking at that special circumstances, yes, I would ask for information about what non-retirement assets they have, but I'm also asking about their latest pay stub. I'm asking about uh, last year's taxes, their current year's taxes. I also need a layoff notice if they've been terminated from their position or if they've had their hours reduced, that'll be reflected in the pay stub. I need to be able to essentially game plan how much money are they going to earn um, for the remainder of the year compared to what they were earning previously. Because that's the tricky part with the FAFSA is that it uses prior, prior year information, meaning we're going off Mm. of two year old 
data that may not accurately reflect your financial reality today. So it's really important, especially if you have listeners out there that have suffered a hardship because of COVID-19, um, that they have their information together. So when they approach the financial aid office, they'll be able to say, hey, listen, remember how much money I said I had on the FAFSA? Well, that's not the case. So you just mentioned, so this recently changed, right? Where now the FAFSA is going back two tax years. It was previously one tax year, correct? Mm -hmm. So Yes. Okay. So this uh, changed over uh, going into uh, 2015-16. Okay. And uh, yeah, from then on, it's been looking at prior, prior year. And the reason for that was before we made the switch, um, and this was a real pain, not just for the financial aid office, but especially for families of students who would have the FAFSA launch online January 1st, and they essentially had to have all their information in by March 1st, because most schools have a March 1st priority deadline to file the FAFSA. And so parents who aren't able to gather all their resources right away, they would just essentially be making an educated guess when it came to filling out the FAFSA. And sometimes that educated guess would be wildly off. And then that student gets selected for verification. There's a lot of paperwork changing hands. It's a very frustrating experience. Yeah. Um, but by making it prior, prior year, meaning we're going back two years, you likely have filed taxes going back two years. If you uh, filed the 2020-21 uh, FAFSA, you probably already filed your taxes for 2018 if you were required to file. Yeah. So it makes it easier for families to have access to that information. And more importantly, you can use the IRS data retrieval tool to electronically upload the information onto the FAFSA. It can all be digitally transcribed. So you don't have to punch in any numbers. It's all done for you. But this, this brings up the point that when it comes to, for the people that are going to try to do a little bit of this planning, right? Like maybe slight repositioning of assets to try to maximize financial aid. They really need to be doing it when their student is like a freshman, right? Because that, that yes. two tax years prior is almost 36 months prior to when they're going to be, it's like th what, thir 33 months prior to when they're going to be filling out the FAFSA, which is fall of senior year, correct? So that goes mm -hmm. back to like midway through freshman year when, when it flips over to that, you know, January and that new tax year. Um, that's when the sort of the, that, that's when the data starts for when that student becomes a senior. So really it's like the middle school years and that freshman year is your last opportunity to, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I actually, I don't prefer my clients to, to much reposition assets to maximize aid because generally that means getting rid of accessible cash and like emergency cash and putting it in, you know, either annuities or life insurance or retirement accounts. And of course, saving for your own retirement is, is great and all that. And, and everyone should generally, everyone should have life insurance that has kids. But, um, but I, I, I don't like my clients to really spend down all their cash just because then you don't have cash for a few years when, you know, when you, and you don't have an emergency uh, position, hopefully you have like a home equity line to fall back on. But um, but just that time horizon for and that opportunity for planning for those people um, is a lot sooner than, than you know, who, what, what parent of a college freshman is really thinking in that regard, right? I mean, I suppose a little bit, but... Um, yeah, no, of course. And I mean, there's certainly a lot of information to uh, gather, especially when we're talking about non-retirement assets and what is and isn't reported on the FAFSA compared to the CSS profile. Um, but what I will uh, say to that is that it's 
very important to remember that the assets, again, um, if they're in a parent's name, are not going to be assessed at as high a value right. um, as if it were in the student's name. So if you have any assets that are currently in the student's name that they would have to report on the FAFSA, I would focus my energy and attention on trying to get that transferred into uh either your name as the parent or another uh, relative's name just to get that out of the student's name so they don't have to report that and uh, pay the price when they uh, punch in their information on the FAFSA. Yeah, I want to talk about maybe after our next break, but I do want to talk about college savings vehicles and options for people that want to save money for their child's future or grandchild's future. I I do want to talk about that and their impact on EFC and and financial aid. But before we get there, you mentioned a little bit ago, Joe, um, you mentioned merit-based aid. And I, I, can you give us an idea of how common this is that a student would receive? So now we're not talking about need-based aid, right? So let's talk, let's transition to merit-based aid and how common is that and how significant is it potentially? Um, I would say it's exceedingly common, especially if we're talking smaller private liberal arts colleges. And I mean, just, uh, looking at our situation here in New England, demographically speaking, these colleges are literally fighting tooth and nail to try to attract a dwindling uh, population of high school seniors. The slice of that pie is shrinking gradually every year, and Hmm. the smaller that slice gets, the harder they fight. And it's not just true in the Northeast, it's also true in the upper Midwest. And we're seeing uh, just so few high school graduates coming out of school ready to uh, be taking on the world and going to college that it's critically important for these admissions uh, officers to meet their quotas because they live and die by their numbers and i saw it myself while working at that small private liberal arts college um, that we had a sliding scale for our admissions representatives when we were talking about merit aid, that if a student had a certain GPA and they had a certain test score and they had a certain class rank, well, they could earn merit aid anywhere from $6,000 up to $20,000. And a lot of people don't realize that when they're looking at at how much a college costs, the actual cost of attendance, that $70,000 figure you were talking about at the top of the uh, show um, that that's just the sticker price and colleges are working very hard to slash that sticker price. And that's where the merit aid comes in. It's not these uh, pots of money that we have hiding under our desks. Trust me, if I had a pot of money under my desk, I probably wouldn't be working in financial aid right now. Um, But what I will say is that depending upon those uh, various factors, your uh, GPA, your test scores, your class rank, that can play a huge impact. And I've seen that happen where I had a student come to us after they submitted their transcripts for the fall, they submitted their test scores, and then they went back and they did the ACT and they got a better score on the ACT than they did the SAT. And that actually bumped up their merit scholarship from $8,000 to $16,000. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, this is why it's important to be keeping in touch with your admissions representative, because there are formulas that are taking place behind the scenes that people are being plugged into. And if there should be a change in your child's GPA, their test scores, their class rank um, that can uh, help better their odds at improving their merit aid, then you want to share that information with them. And it's very interesting, too, in this uh, day and age when we're finding that test scores aren't as uh, necessary as they were before to be admitted to school. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
more often than not, these tests are basically used to suss out merit aid to figure out, okay, well, who's going to qualify for yeah. which amount of aid? So it, even though many schools now may not require a student to submit to the SAT or the ACT, I would say it's still worth looking into, especially okay. in terms of merit aid, to see if that could improve your child's odds at getting a larger merit aid award. That's interesting that you just, that you just essentially said that the SAT... Uh, ACT is general is used f- to determine aid first and foremost. Well, I guess admissions and yes. aid. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know there are statistics. I feel like I've read statistics out there regarding like what most people pay relative to the sticker price of the school. Right. It's like a pretty. S- what, do you have any statistics regarding that? Like, obviously, you know, the sticker price is seventy two thousand a year or whatever. What 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 is the average family paying or are, maybe not the average family what um what yeah what's the average cost of like that people actually pay for that $72,000 a year school do you have any can do you have any statistics on that you know, I would have to say it's a range depending upon yeah. everybody's individual financial situation. But I'll use my own story. Uh, for example, I had to borrow $46,000 to pay for my four years of education. And that was with my parents helping me. And when I'm talking with families about mapping out how they're going to pay uh, for their child's undergraduate experience, it's uh, really important to consider not only the resources that the school's making available, but whether or not you've availed yourself of all federal and state resources. And uh, the school that I uh, ultimately attended, I am a alum of Marist College. Um, They were very uh, generous. They offered me a $10,000 presidential scholarship at the time being 18 years old. I thought that they, you know, had dipped into their uh, vast reserves to uh, pull up a $10,000 scholarship for me. Now being in financial aid, looking back on that, I realized that was them just uh, slashing the sticker price for me to Hmm. be more attractive in my eyes. Uh, But no, they uh, offered me a $10,000 merit scholarship and I had some financial aid. My parents are not rich by any means, but you know, we are well off and we were able to uh, put all three of us through uh, college. So, you know, they were able to uh, assist with some of my expenses, but I wasn't qualifying for any need-based aid. I didn't get the uh, federal Pell Grant. I didn't get the New York State TAP Grant as a New York resident. And so, yeah, I mean, we had to essentially strategize. And as you were saying before, um, if you are a parent of multiple children, many of whom are looking at going to college in their future, um, you're going to have to consider, okay, well, what's the level of risk that I'm willing to assume as a parent so that I can put my kids through school while still being able to retire comfortably? And as you said, it's really about putting skin in the game. Um, my parents were willing to help me my uh, first three years, and uh, my father even borrowed a Parent PLUS loan at one point to help uh, shift the burden. But the final year, I had to borrow a $19,000 loan, and they were very clear with me that it's your education, it's your skin in the game, and that th- if this wasn't already making you take it seriously, the amount of debt you've racked up, yeah. well, this is going to be the icing on the cake right here. It's up to you to get yourself across the finish line if you want to succeed. So, you know, in terms of uh, how much a family would pay out of pocket, um, as I said, it's a range. It's hard to say without knowing a individual's uh, financial circumstances. Okay. But I would say the best thing that you can do to uh, leverage uh, your odds is to apply to as many schools that, that appeal to you and actually create a real sense of competition. My f- stumbling block, and I didn't realize this at 18, I thought I had it all figured out. I already was... <laughs> 
very clear that I wanted to do journalism. And of course, looking back on it now, maybe it really wasn't such a smart bet to be going to a private college playing private tuition to study for a profession that has an annual starting salary of $30,000 a year. Uh, but I will say that I had only applied to three schools and that was a big mistake on my part. Yeah. These days I'm working with students and uh, I've seen them apply upwards of nine, 10, sometimes a dozen schools or more. Yeah, yeah I heard that and was common now. Yeah. Yeah, that so is very common. Actually, ahead, if I just might interject for a sec, yeah. that's a huge part of our model. Um, so essentially, you know, when we do a college search, we recommend our clients all apply to a minimum of eight and then okay. usually around a maximum of 12. And that's to actually uh, leverage, right, some of the things that Joe was, was talking about so that we can not essentially create a bidding war, but again, have a little bit of leverage when we go to um, either the financial aid office, but more more um, typically the admissions office and ask for a little bit more, more money. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out too is uh, one of the services we do offer is scholarship coaching. And so it's kind of unique. Okay. Um, one of the reasons uh, that we do it is because I have a, a kind of a different... Um, different situation where I went to school traditional age 18 to 21 and then I went back to school again in my 30s and I paid for it by entering and uh, winning scholarship essay contests. Oh, so cool. um, all the techniques that I teach our clients I know they work because I use them to put myself through school. I'm not doing this to be like, oh, Tyler's great. As you know, <laughs> the idea, the idea here is though that that you know, even as an adult student, right? I earned more than 90 grand in scholarships. So, yeah. Wow. Right. Yep. So when when we when we tell people there's external scholarships out there, there are. Okay. Hold that thought. Um, we just have to take a quick break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara Reed. I'm joined today by the lovely folks at Vested Academics. We're talking all things. Um, college, being prepared for the cost of college and uh, talking through some financial aid and merit-based aid issues. We're just taking a break and we'll be right back.